On October 6, 1826, a saddle maker named David Workman, who lived in Old Franklin, Missouri, put the following advertisement in the Missouri Intelligencer newspaper. Notice is hereby given to all persons that Christopher Carson, a boy about 16 years old, small of his age but thick set, light hair, ran away from the subscriber, living in Franklin, Howard County, Missouri, to whom he had been bound to learn the saddler's trade on or about the 1st of September last. He is supposed to have made his way to the upper part of the state. All persons are notified not to harbor, support, or assist said boy under penalty of the law. One cent reward will be given to any person who will bring back the said boy. Some years later, Kit Carson said, I was apprenticed to David Workman to learn the saddler trade. I remained with him two years. The business did not suit me, and having heard so many tales of life in the mountains of the West, I concluded to leave him. He was a good man, and I often recall to my mind the kind treatment I received from his hands. But taking into consideration that if I remained with him and served my apprenticeship, I would have to pass my life in labor that was distasteful to me, and being anxious to travel for the purpose of seeing different countries, I concluded to join the first party for the Rocky Mountains. So Kit Carson was a wayward teenager. He had, uh, his father had been killed in a tree felling accident in 1818, and he had no use for his stepfather, and he was an obnoxious pain in the ass, like a lot of teenagers are, full of resentment and, on one hand and, and full of dreams of adventure on the other. Not a whole lot different than a kid who wants to grow up to be a Navy SEAL or an astronaut. So after he left David Workman and ran away, he hooked up with a party heading down to Santa Fe on the Santa Fe Trail. It was one of the very first parties that took the Santa Fe Trail from Missouri to the New Mexico Territory, which was still in the hands of, of Mexico at that time. And he worked there in Santa Fe and Taos, New Mexico, as a teamster and a cook and, and a, a camp helper. But really what he wanted to be was a mountain man. Mountain men had come into the saddlery and told tall tales of the West. And, and like any teenager, or at least any teenager worth his salt, he looked at those men and, and thought, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And so he was determined to become a mountain man. The mountain men were the most skilled and audacious of all the American frontiersmen. They were the elite breed of the age of heroic commerce, as uh, historian Stephen Bound calls it. I love the term because it really captures the nature of commerce from the 1600s on up through the, the very beginning of the 20th century. The fur trade was part of that age of heroic commerce, and it was an imperial form of commerce where, where the great powers of the world, England, France, the Dutch, the Spanish, all were vying for territories, not just for the, the prestige of planting the flag, but for the resources. Prime among those resources were peltries, furs, especially beaver. And for the better part of two centuries, the beaver trade was the economic engine that drove the settlement and uh, the economy of the northern part of North America, New England, the Ohio Valley, Canada, the Great Lakes region. And it sparked wars, it sparked wars between England and France. It sparked the beaver wars in the 17th century when the Haudenosaunee, uh, better known as the Iroquois, Confederacy pushed into the Great Lakes region and the Ohio country in order to gain control of the fur trade. And they were armed by English and Dutch traders. And, and they almost depopulated the Ohio country in that uh, latter part of the, the 1600s. And it was a hugely disruptive process. And it was all about beaver fur. Why, you say? Well, beaver fur had a couple of, of different uses in, uh, in European society, and, and there was a high demand for it. Uh, beaver robes were especially warm and, uh, and somewhat waterproof and very popular in colder climates. But the primary purpose of beaver fur was to make felt, 
that was an era when everyone wore a hat, which is a glorious thing. And beaver felt or beaver fur makes the very best felt. You can make felt for hats out of a lot of different things, out of wool and out of rabbit fur and other lesser lesser furs, but beaver fur makes the finest of felts. And my own everyday hat is 100% beaver felt, and I can testify that it is, in fact, superior. It's lighter, it holds its shape better, it repels water. It's just a grand thing. And since everybody wore hats in the from the 17th century through the 18th and the 19th century, at least into the middle part of the 19th century, as we'll see, uh, they were making the felt out of beaver, and there was an insatiable demand for beaver pelts, and that's what drove the fur trade. Nowadays, when most Americans think of the fur trade, they think of the Rocky Mountain fur trade, but that was really only a, a short period of 20 years or so, 1820 to 1840, that was kind of the apex of the American fur trade. It was a very small part of a, a multi-century-long economic endeavor, but it was kind of, a, of an unusual and exceptional period, and the reason for that was that instead of trading with the natives for their peltries, the companies, the fur companies, and a whole series of entrepreneurs sent brigades of trappers out into the Rocky Mountain wilderness and beyond, uh, from, all the way from the Rocky Mountains to California, as we'll see, uh, to trap the beaver to trap the beaver directly and sell directly to the companies, and that made for a an exceptional period and sort of a golden age of the fur trade, the era that we know as the era of the mountain men. And again, that's what Kit Carson aspired to be. He aspired to be a mountain man. He sure didn't get there right away. He certainly paid his dues for a while, driving wagons as a teamster and serving as a, as a cook, both in Taos and, and for, uh, for freight expeditions in and out of Taos and Santa Fe. But his dues pan paid off because one of the men that he cooked for was named Ewing Young. And Ewing Young was one of those great badass fur trade entrepreneurs that nobody remembers today, but who had a tremendous impact in, in history, not least in making Kit Carson his right-hand man and teaching him the ropes and teaching him how to be a mountain man of operations was in the southwest. He operated out of Taos and, and west to California. And when he tired of trying to catch beaver, as he put it, he headed north to Oregon in 1834, and he became a pioneer cattleman in the Willamette Valley and the first European-American to build a house west of the Willamette River in a location that, uh, unbeknownst to me until just recently, I was driving right past on my way from Sisters to Portland, Oregon. So Young operated out of, of Taos, which was just a sleepy little Pueblo village, not, not much of a city. And he partnered with other men to trap in the southern Rockies into Colorado. And uh, then he would also intersperse his time in the beaver streams, making trading runs back to Missouri along the Santa Fe Trail. And one of the things about Young was that he... He was, he was a real hard charger, and he did not want to follow in other people's footsteps, both temperamentally and because he believed that, that his fortune was to be found outside the, uh, the places where other people had trapped. And he told his partner, William Wolfskill, I want to get outside of where trappers have ever been. So he tried to do so by going down into the Gila River country, which was Apache country in New Mexico and, and what is now Arizona. And uh, his first expedition had a bad time of it out there. They got jumped by Apaches. Several men were, were wounded, and they had to pull back to, to Taos, and it was a, a completely unsuccessful mission uh, because not only did 
they get uh, their clock cleaned by the Apaches, the furs that they were able to trap before they retreated, were confiscated by the New Mexican authorities because Young was trapping without a license. So this was in 1827, and in 1829, Kit Carson, when he was age 19, signed on with yet another expedition under Young's command and uh, headed out into the, into the same territory. Now, when we talk about these fur trapping expeditions, they really were expeditions. We probably all soaked up the image of the Lone Mountain Man living a Jeremiah Johnson life in the Rockies. That's, that's what I did when I was a kid. I thought that that's what mountain men were, just these loners off into the, in the wilderness on their own maybe with a trapping partner, maybe with a, an Indian wife. But uh, the real deal fur trade was nothing like that. The, the heyday of the Rocky Mountain fur trade was not like that at all. Trapping expeditions were major business enterprises, and they were conducted by groups of men from around 20 to as many as 60, and sometimes with native and mixed-blood families in tow, and they were organized along military lines, uh, kind of like a, a ship at sea. The captain's word was, was law, and, you know, they called the captain the bushway but, uh, in, in the fur trade, but it was, he played a very similar role to a ship's captain, and they called the, the fur trade expeditions brigades, fur brigades, and they would go out in force because that was the only way that they could maintain safety and security, and then they would break out into smaller groups to, uh, to trap in streams and tributaries and then reunite and ford up together to, to maintain that level of security. The mountain men did not fight their way through the beaver streams. They couldn't have done that. They were, they were way beyond any frontier, and they were a tiny minority in a world that at that time still belonged to the native people's that lived in the region. But sometimes they did have to fight their way through. And in the case of the Gila River, that was, that was one of those times. And it's kind of surprising to think of, of the Gila River as, as a beaver stream. We think of New Mexico and Arizona as, as deserts. But in fact, it was a very, very rich beaver stream, and it hadn't been trapped yet in 1829, largely because the Apaches that were in that area were pretty hostile to incursions by armed parties, and they were extraordinary warriors. In fact, they would be the last American Indians to surrender to the American military when Geronimo surrendered to Nelson Miles down on the Mexican border in 1886. So these were tough people. They weren't real interested in trade with the Americans. They were making their living raiding Mexican settlements, and they didn't take kindly to these large armed parties of American trappers moving into their territory. So they'd pummeled Young's 1827 expedition pretty hard, and they were poised to do the same thing to the 1829 expedition. But Young had learned a valuable lesson, and he was ready. And Ewing Young did not tolerate any impediments to his ambitions, so his response to being met by the same Apache Indians that had uh, had forced his previous expedition to retreat was pretty brutal. This was to be Kit Carson's first violent encounter with Indians, and it occurred on the Salt River, which was a tributary to the Gila, and We'll let Kit take up the tale. We, on the headwaters of the Salt River, met the same Indians who had defeated the former party. Young directed the greater part of his men to hide themselves, which was done, the men concealing themselves under blankets, pack saddles, as best they could. The hills were covered with Indians, and seeing so few, they came to the conclusion to make an attack and drive us from our position. Our commander allowed them to enter the camp and then directed the party to fire on them, which was done, the Indians losing and killed 15 or 20 warriors, 
and a great number in wounded. That's a pretty big battle in mountain man warfare and a huge loss for the Apaches, and it really opened up the territory for Young's brigade to continue trapping down the, the Gila River, which is what they did. So as I mentioned earlier, this was a fairly large brigade, but they'd break up into smaller parties and the trappers would go out and, and set their, tra- their traps. They used castorium, uh, which is an anal secretion of the, the beaver, which they used to mark their territories and uh, smear that on a stick. They called it uh, their, their beaver medicine. And they'd spear, their, they would uh, smear that on a stick and uh, plant that in the stream bed and bend it over the trap and, and try to attract a beaver in to, to give that s- stick a sniff. And then they'd put their foot in the trap, trap and close, beaver would swim to, for deeper water and drown. And, you know, it's not a, a particularly pleasant or heroic endeavor, but that's how you did it. And uh, so these mountain men were working in very cold streams for hours at a time, and it was a, a rough way to, to make a living. It was hard on the body. They'd pack the beaver skins into into heavy packs, which they'd either load onto pack mules to, to tote along with them, or they would cache in uh, various places and, and hope to pick it up later and take it to, to market. In the case of the Southwest, they would be taking it back to, to Taos. Later on, there would be fur trade rendezvous in the, in the Rocky Mountains, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So this was no easy way to make a living, but Kit Carson took to it. One of the most important tasks in the fur brigade was that of the hunters, and Kit often served as a hunter, bringing in game meat to supplement their provisions. There's no way that a brigade of the size of Young's Expedition or most of the others could carry enough food to to keep them supplied over a long period of time. So they they lived largely on game meat, so the hunter's role was was very important. And Kid had wanted to get out and see some country, and boy did he. Uh, the singer-songwriter Steve Earle, who's an avid fisherman, said that one of the things that's great about fly fishing is that trout don't live in ugly places, and it turns out that, that neither do beaver. And so the mountain men were, were working, yes, in rough conditions, but in some of the most beautiful country that the world has to offer. The Young Expedition covered a tremendous amount of territory. I've always been awestruck by the miles that the mountain men put in on horseback and and the backs of of mules. You drive through the country that they covered, and I have quite a bit, and you're hours and hours on the road in some of the most rugged country on earth, and you think about these guys out there getting up every day before the sun up and, and working their way through the country the way that they did. And the amount of territory that they covered is just, it's mind-boggling. And the Young Expedition is, is one of the most impressive in that regard. After the, the fight with the uh, Apaches, who were, were probably Coyotero Apaches, by the way, not, uh, not the Chiricahua of Geronimo and Cochise, fame, but uh, a little bit northern band of Apaches. After they, uh, they fought with them and, and dealt them a pretty punishing blow, part of, uh, of Young's brigade went back to Taos with the furs that they had been able to collect. And Young took 19 men with him across the Mojave Desert into California and if you've ever been across the Mojave Desert in a car, you can imagine what it's like doing it on horseback. That's a long, dry crossing and extremely arduous. And Kit, uh, Kit would do it again and again, uh, multiple times. It would become a theater of operations for him during the Mexican War, a little over a decade on. But the young expedition made it across the Mojave Desert, and wound up at Mission San Gabriel, up against the San Gabriel Mountains, which is very near where I grew up. And remember that 
at that time, California was under Mexican authority, and the Mexican authorities didn't really take too kindly to having American fur trappers come into their territory. Jedediah Smith, uh, the great exploring mountain man, had uh, run into into trouble with the Mexican authorities there. And uh, it was a bit of a dicey business. They could uh, arrest you for trapping illegally, which, of course, Young was. Um, but uh, Young, Young managed to go ahead and trap up the Central Valley of California, which had been hit pretty hard by the Hudson's Bay Company, which was operating out of Fort Vancouver, which is on right on what's now the Washington and Oregon state line, just a little bit north of Portland. But Hudson Bay Company trappers had had trapped down into that uh, San Joaquin Valley, but uh, it was a virtual Serengeti of game animals, and um, several people on that young expedition commented on the the phenomenal amount of game, which kind of breaks your heart when when you think of of it all being shot out in such a a short period of time. You know, it reminds you of that. Eagle's song, Call Someplace Paradise and Kiss It Goodbye. But uh, one of the ways that that Young kept on the good side of the Mexican authorities was uh, he volunteered his men to help them chase down a party of mission Indians from the mission at San Jose who had run off to the foothills of the Sierra Nevada where they found refuge amongst some natives who had not yet been brought into the mission system. This isn't really the time or place to go into the, the nature of the mission system, but uh, let's, let's let it go at the fact that it's the kind of place that you would want to run away from. So Young detailed Carson and 12 men for the operation on behalf of the Mexican authorities, and that party trailed the refugees and located them in a, at an Indian village, and they got into a day-long firefight, and the mountain men burned the village to the ground. They demanded the surrender of the runaways on penalty of slaughtering every native in the area. And the Indians who had given the mission runaways refuge didn't have an alternative, really, but to turn the fugitives over to the custody of the mountain men who returned them back to San Jose. This is one of those kinds of incidents that you can't really pretty up Kit Carson was acting under the orders of his boss as a mercenary hired out to Mexican authorities. It's hard not to have sympathy for the runaways who were trying to get away from a a system that treated them not a whole lot better than slaves. And it's hard not to have sympathy with the villagers who offered them refuge and then had hell drop down on their heads at courtesy of, of a bunch of mountain men. It's just not. It's just an ugly incident. There's no getting around it, and it's probably worth taking a minute to talk about the implications of this kind of incident for Carson's reputation and legacy, because this is the kind of thing that his critics and those who damn him as a genocidal killer point to as exhibits in the case. And uh, even sympathetic biographers like Hampton Sides, who wrote a great book called Blood and Thunder, which I, I enjoy very much and recommend highly. But Hampton Sides looks at incidents like this, and he uses that as evidence that Carson was, as he called it, a natural-born killer. And I don't think that that's right. I think that that's extreme. There's no question that Carson liked to fight, he was a, a very scrappy young man, and that would change a little bit as he as he got older and wiser, as it tends to do. But in his years in the mountains, he, he had a reputation for being a fighter. As the great chronicler of the mountain men, Winfred Blevins, wrote in Give, Give Your Heart to the Hawks, Though he never grew to even five and a half feet, he had the pound-for-pound pound fighting aggressiveness of a bobcat. Now that's Blevins being vivid, which is part of what makes his work so enjoyable. But it's 100% accurate. He was he, and maybe you know, it was the small guy syndrome. 
but he was aggressive and, and combative. And he, he just never shied away from a fight, especially when he was, he was young. And you got to remember, he was 19, 20 years old at this time. He was also very inclined to follow the, the lead of a great captain, which is part of that Scots-Irish tradition. And Young was his, his captain. And if Young sent him out on a punitive expedition, it doesn't seem that he, he questioned it too much. And uh, it's harsh. And those kind of punitive expeditions were an ugly feature, of, especially of California history. They happen very frequently in California. And uh, like I said, there's just no, no prettying it up. This is just something that's there as part of Carson's character and his actions and a part of the, the culture that he was operating in. For Young, this was just business. The Mexican authorities in Monterey were appreciative and they left his illegal expedition alone. So Young sold his catch to a schooner captain at San Francisco Bay and headed back south. And... Uh, he made a, a terrible mistake when they hit Los Angeles and gave his men a chunk of their pay, and they promptly got hopelessly drunk and more or less mutinied. As you might expect, after wading in cold streams up to their crotch for months at a time and traveling huge distances over rough country and getting into scrapes with, with Indians, one-sided as they were, they wanted to stay in the land of sunshine, seacoasts, and dark-eyed women. And one of the trappers got liquored up and, uh, and completely lost it. And for reasons that, that nobody knew or at least wrote down, shot one of his comrades. So this was a, a pretty serious situation. And uh, Carson did not participate in this mutiny and did not get out of hand. There, there seems to be no evidence that Carson was a heavy drinker um, ever. And it uh, seems that he stayed sober, did not mutiny, stayed loyal to Young. And Young sent him on ahead with a mule train while he got a handle on his unruly crew. And they headed back east across the Mojave again and trapped back up the Gila River and made a good haul. And they also hit a windfall when they ran across a party of, of, of Apaches who had stolen a couple hundred horses in raids on haciendas in Mexico. And the mountain men attacked the Apaches and seized their horses and, and, and took them to sell back in, in Taos as well. So Young had one, one other trick up his sleeve, remembering that, uh, that the Mexican authorities had confiscated his haul in the 1827 expedition uh, because he didn't have a trapping license. Well, he had a trading license. So what he did was he, he cashed the, the whole company take of furs in a mine shaft in the copper mines at uh, Santa Rita del Cobre in the Apache country. And he rode into Taos and... and got his trading license, came back, retrieved the peltries, and passed them off as having been traded for, which probably nobody actually really believed. But, uh, but it was enough of a fig leaf that the, the ruse worked. And uh, so his 1829 to 1831 expedition went down in fur trade history as one of the most lucrative and successful of them all. And... Uh, I'm going to read a passage from Robert Utley's book, A Life Wild and, and Perilous, that sums up the impact of that expedition. The young expedition of 1829 to 31 had several important results. It further spotlighted the country of the Salt, Gila, and Verde as prime beaver grounds. It added to the rising awareness that ships in California ports afforded a ready market for furs. Perhaps more important, it dramatized for Taos trappers and traders the economic opportunities of California. Many, including Ewing Young himself, began to think of moving their base from Taos to Mexico's province on the Pacific. Now, California is going to loom very, very large indeed in the story of Kit Carson, but that's a few years down the trail yet. For Kit, the main results of the 1829 to 1831 Young expedition were that he had a fairly substantial amount of money in his pockets. And he had 
served a, a full apprenticeship. He had learned trapping and tactical skills and logistics and leadership from Ewing Young. And he had become a full-fledged, real-deal mountain man. Kit Carson didn't just become a mountain man. By 1830, he had joined what uh, would be considered the elite fraternity of mountain men and was considered a, a free trapper, which simply meant that he could sell his peltries to any company. He wasn't hired by a particular company, and he didn't owe anybody a contract. He could just sell to the highest bidder. And only the most capable trappers could make their living that way. They often attached themselves to large brigades and, and rode with, with company brigades because that was a safe and uh, a safer and more secure way of moving through the country. And they were always welcome because they were the most capable amongst the mountain men and those extra rifles were always welcome. But uh, they were free and independent men and possibly the freest and most independent men who have ever existed on the American continent. Trapping in the Rocky Mountains was a very hazardous occupation and really, in, in a lot of ways, hostility with the native peoples was the least of your worries. You could fall from a horse, you could freeze, you could starve, you could drown in a, in a stream, you could get mauled severely or killed by a grizzly bear. It was not a, an easy life and... and course, the danger just added to the exhilaration of it. The, uh, the trappers tended to become addicted to their way of life and, and, uh, and truly loved it. And I think that it's very evident in Kit Carson's reminiscences that the years that he spent in the mountains were the best part of his life. In terms of their interactions with the, the native peoples, Tom Dunlay's book, Kit Carson and the Indians, uh, examines a really complex relationship of the mountain men of the 1820s to the 1840s with the various tribes that inhabited and roamed over the Rocky Mountain region and the Southwest and, and the Great Plains. You can't really speak of, of Indians in the context of, well, really ever, but in the context of the mountain men era, you have to differentiate between different native groups. Some tribes like the Flathead and the Shoshone were consistent friends and or allies of the trappers. And some like the Blackfoot and the Arikara were constant threats. Others were opportunistic and they could go either way depending on circumstances and vulnerability. The Crow, who ranged mostly in what's today Montana and Wyoming, fell into that category. They were more than happy to ride with the American trappers against the Blackfoot, who were enemies of both people and enemies of virtually everyone in the Northern Plains. But they weren't above stealing the horse or many horses, given the opportunity, and they would even kill a, a lone trapper. And Kit Carson had an interesting tangle with them in January of 1833, just as he was becoming a, a free trapper. And he recounted the episode in his memoir, which he dictated to his clerk in 1856. A party of about 50 Crow Indians had stolen horses from Carson's party of trappers in an area that's just south of what is today Colorado Springs, Colorado. And the trappers trailed the horse thieves through deep snow and approached their camp. And I'll let Kit take up the tale. We saw at a distance of two or three miles a grove of timber. Taking into consideration the condition of our animals, we concluded to make for the timber and camp for the night. On our arrival, we saw fire some four miles ahead of us. We tied our animals to trees, and as soon as it became dark, we took a circuitous route for the Indian camp. We were to come on the Indians from the direction in which they were traveling. It took us some time to get close enough to the camp to discover their strength. We had to crawl and used all means that we were aware of to elude detection. After considerable crawling, etc., we came within about 100 yards of their camp. The Indians were in two forts of about equal strength. They were dancing and singing and passing the night jovially, 
in honor of the robbery committed by them on the, on the whites. We saw four horses. They were tied at the entrance to the fort. Let come what would, we were bound to get our horses. We remained concealed in the brush until they laid down to sleep, we suffering severely from the cold. When we thought they were all asleep, six of us crawled towards the animals. The remainder was to remain where they were as a reserve for us to fall back on in case of not meeting with success. By hiding behind logs and crawling silently towards the fort, the snow being of great service to us, for when crawling we were not liable to make any noise, we finally reached the horses, cut the rope, and drove them to where was stationed our reserve. We then held counsel, taking the views of each in regard to what had best be done. Some were in favor of retiring. Having recovered their property and received no damage, they would be willing to return to camp. Not so with those that had lost no animals. They wanted satisfaction for the trouble and hardships they had gone through while in pursuit of the thieves. Myself and two more were the ones that had not lost horses, and we were determined to have satisfaction, let the consequences be ever so fatal. The peace party could not get a convert to their side. Seeing us so determined for a fight, there is always a brotherly affection existing among the trappers and the sight of danger always being their choice. We started the horses that were retaken to the place where we tied our other animals with three men as escort. We then marched direct for the fort from which we had got our horses. When within a few paces of the fort, a dog discovered us and commenced barking. The Indians were alarmed and commenced getting up. We opened up a deadly fire, each ball taking its victim. We killed nearly every Indian in the fort. The few that re remained were wounded and made their escape to the other fort, the Indians of which commenced firing upon us, but without any effect, we keeping concealed behind trees and only firing when we were sure of our object. It was now near day. The Indians could see our force, and it being so weak, they concluded to charge on us. We received them and when very close fired on them, killing five, and the balance returned to their fort. After some deliberation among the Indians, they finally made another attempt, which met with greater success to them. We had to retreat, but there being much timber in the vicinity, we had but little difficulty in making our camp, and then being reinforced by the three men with the horses, we awaited the approach of the enemy. They did not attack us. We started for our main camp and arrived in the evening. During our pursuit for the lost animals, we suffered considerably, but in the success of having recovered our horses and sending many a redskin to his long home, our sufferings were soon forgotten. So there we have another story that can be interpreted to paint Carson in the light of the Indian killer, the genocidal, dangerous man of violence. I think that that misses out on the context of what occurred in that fight and why. Remember that in the first episode, we talked about that Scots-Irish sense of retributive justice. This is an excellent example of that principle. The frontier culture that Carson grew up in would not tolerate any kind of abuse. Uh, you answered a shove with a punch. And in the case of, of horse theft... This was a very grave, not only a very grave insult to the trappers, it was a life-threatening act of near violence because stranding somebody in tough terrain in the middle of winter with no, no horses uh, was tantamount to, to killing them. So the response was, was not out of line to the provocation. The language that Carson used, or at least the clerk that was taking down his dictation used, has uh, gotten up the nose of some later revisionist critics, particularly his saying that uh, he wanted satisfaction, and the line where he states that uh, they sent many a redskin to their long home. And, of course, that language may abrade some sens sensibilities or sensitivities of, of the late 20th and early 21st century, but uh, certainly was not genocidal language in the middle of the 19th century, or later for that matter. Uh, I think that it's, it's leaning too heavily on, 
on those lines to interpret this as as a, a act of a of a racial a racially motivated killer. The idea of, of getting satisfaction was again part of that frontier Scots Irish culture of of retributive justice, more than an eye for an eye, and uh, the idea of sending a many a redskin to his his long home. I mean, we don't we don't like that kind of language now. The Washington football team is is abandoning the name Redskins, but it was just absolutely common usage in. Uh, in the middle of the 19th century when Carson's autobiography was dictated. So I just don't think that, that there's much to be gained from reading too much into that. I think another aspect of this that, that needs to be understood is that the Native peoples themselves completely understood this kind of warfare. And in fact, there were a couple, at least a couple of Cheyenne Indians along with the trappers in this expedition. And in later years, their accounting of the same events uh, was a little bit different than Carson's. They gave themselves credit for all the killing, which goes to show you that, uh, that they certainly didn't have any sort of, of sense that there was a, a, a racial line being crossed. This was the nature of intertribal warfare on the plains. Just a few years down the road, Red Cloud of the Aglala Sioux would make a name for himself, making just these kinds of, of raids, stealing horses, stealing women, and killing men, and sometimes women as well. And uh, there was a certain trend in, in revisionist history in the late 20th century to portray native warfare as a kind of a of a benign game where they would count coups, smite each other, and and casualties were very low. And subsequent study, both in oral tradition and in anthropology, has indicated, has demonstrated, in fact, that intertribal warfare from long before European Americans appeared in the Great Plains or Rocky Mountains was extremely violent. And that's no surprise to anyone who is, has studied human history. Um, there are, are no groups of people who are not prone to violently attacking the other for reasons of plunder, reasons of prestige, and the sheer joy of, of doing it. Um, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, both great Lakota warriors took great pride and pleasure in their warfare. And in fact, intertribal warfare remained more important to the Lakota in later years than their warfare against the encroaching American military, uh, much to their cost in, in some regards. So if you put the incident with the crow horse thieves in a cultural context, it was just a perfect example of the kind of conflict that occurred. Uh, raid, theft, retribution, cycle of violence, if you will, but it was absolutely normal for the culture and the times. There would occur in just a couple of years from the crow horse theft incident Another incident that demonstrates not only that Kit Carson was a scrappy individual, pound for pound, uh, the, the fighting tendencies and capabilities of a bobcat, but that it wasn't a racially discriminatory characteristic. Uh, this was the first incident that really kicked Carson's name into the limelight in a national sense because it was reported on by a couple of different people, including a missionary who appeared at the rendezvous in the mountains in 1835. Now, the rendezvous is essentially a trade fair. Uh, the fur companies realized that it was more profitable to bring the market to the mountain men than to try to bring the furs to market because the market was in distant cities, St. Louis um, being 
the primary uh, port for furs to go back into the eastern United States. So they brought supplies into the mountains, into pre-designated areas where there would be a gathering in the middle of the summer where, when the beaver fur was not good and, and trapping was, was relaxed. And hundreds of trappers and many, many Indians would gather at these rendezvous, and it was a, a giant carnival and trade fair. Uh, many of the mountain men would, like sailors home to port after a, a couple years' cruise, would blow in their entire earnings for a season on booze and women and gambling and end up refitting for the next year on credit with nothing to show for a long and arduous year in the mountains. But uh, the rendezvous is, is recreated these days by historical reenactors, it's, uh, and it's a lot of fun. It's a, a great deal of fun, and um, different reenactment groups have varying levels of, of authenticity in, in what they deliver. But uh, it's a way for, for enthusiasts to get together and shoot black powder firearms and, and test their primitive living skills. And, uh, you know, sometimes folks will have a, a, a cooler of beer hidden under a, a deer hide or a buffalo hide in the teepee, and uh, nobody kicks too hard about that. And some of them are, are real sticklers for authenticity. Either way you slice it, they're celebrating what was for the mountain men a, a gigantic celebration and, and somewhat of a, of a debauch. But in the 1835 rendezvous, uh, Carson had an encounter with a French-Canadian man named Joseph Chouinard, who, uh, or Chouinard, um, which the, the trappers uh, reduced in their lingo to Chouinard, and uh, there were a lot of French Canadians in the fur trade. This was they were sort of the pioneers of the fur trade back in the 17th century, and they continued to uh, be a, a major participants all the way through the, the Rocky Mountain fur trade. And uh, this Chouinard was a uh, a very large man and a very belligerent man, and apparently he tied one on pretty good at the rendezvous and. He uh, he began to push folks around, um, knock folks around, claiming that he could whip any American in the camp. And uh, being that he was a, a big dude and very mean-tempered, people were giving him a wide berth. And Carson wasn't having it. All of five and a half feet tall at the at the most. He, uh, he wasn't afraid to take on this gigantic Frenchman. And he, according to the stories, uh, approached him and said that, uh, that he was an American and he, he didn't believe that Chunar could whip him and that uh, he would, quote-unquote, rip his guts. And this was a challenge that, of course, no mountain man could let go, whether he was of... of Scots-Irish descent or French descent or, or any descent. And so they retired to their respective corners, mounted up on horseback. Shonar had his uh, had either a rifle or a, uh, a trade musket, and Carson grabbed a pistol. And they rode at each other, and uh, it wasn't quite a, a, a duel on horseback where they, where they rode at each other firing. They rode up upon each other, stopped, and words were exchanged of, of some nature. And Shonar raised his musket and fired and missed Carson by a hair. It uh, uh, burned the side of his face. You know, black powder arms throw a, a, a lot of hot grains out um, along with the, the ball. And so it was probably the... Uh, the muzzle blast that burned Carson a bit and uh, fluttered his hair, which he wore down to his collar. Carson's shot was uh, a little better and hit Shunar in the wrist and traveled up his arm and shattered his arm. And uh, 
There's speculation that Carson later finished him off. Um, he's vague in his uh, in his autobiography. He just says that we didn't have any more trouble from that Frenchman, which some have interpreted to mean that uh, that he later killed him. Uh, that's almost certainly not true. Um, the fur trade was there was no law per se in uh, the Rocky Mountains during the fur trade. But the mountain men were not lawless men, and they would not have tolerated an out-and-out murder. And so it's almost certain that uh, that Shunar, uh, perhaps he died of his his wounds. Uh, it was certainly a serious wound, and and uh, very apt to turn gangrenous and and either require amputation or or would kill the man. But uh, he almost certainly, when he said. We had no more trouble from that Frenchman meant that uh, that Shunar was just put out of action. Now, there's another wrinkle to this story that may or may not be accurate. Um, some chroniclers believe that one of the reasons that Carson decided to stand up to Shunar was that Shunar had put the make on a Arapaho girl, a teenage girl, that uh, Carson was also sparking. There's no definite proof that that is the case. Um, makes for a better story, of course. Uh, he was he was fighting for the honor of of a young lady. But uh, in any case, what is known and is factual is that sometime around this time, Carson married, and he married a young. Arapaho girl, probably about 15 years old, which was absolutely common in the mountains at that time and in, in those cultures. And uh, her name was Wa'anibe, or Singing Grass. And mountain man marriages were an interesting commodity. Um, a lot of mountain men came to the rendezvous, again, with you know a year's worth of, of pent-up lust and they slaked that lust by buying the favors of of women who uh, were often pimped out by their husbands or brothers because there was not the kind of shame in many of the cultures and yeah you can't say Indian culture because there's not a singular Indian culture and various tribes and peoples had very different attitudes towards morality of all kinds including their their sexual morality but many of these or, uh, of these tribes and many of these peoples had a pretty relaxed view of sexual relations and it was no big deal to uh, to trade sexual favors for a handful of beads for example marriage was a different proposition and it uh, required a, a bride payment and it was a it was a serious business some of these marriages were, fairly casual affairs and and could be set aside at will. And, uh, you know, a mountain man would stay with a woman or a woman would stay with a mountain man for a year or two, and then she would go back to her her people with, uh, with no hard feelings. And on occasion, uh, mountain men traded wives and or sold them. And uh, in other cases and in actually quite a few cases they were love matches and they lasted for many years in some cases decades in which uh, the mountain man who married into a, a tribe really became a, a part of that that tribe and often acted as a cultural broker between the growing presence of the European American civilization and the native peoples. Uh, the book and movie Black Robe offers a really excellent and graphic depiction of the allure of native women. In this case, it's in 17th century French Canada and the fur trade of, of that era. But uh, it's, a, it's an excellent movie in any case and, and book and well worth taking a look at, but it, it explores, again, in pretty graphic uh, nature, the, the kinds of relationships that occurred in that environment. In Kit Carson's case, 
it appears for all evidence that his match with Wa'anibi was a love match and that he cared very deeply for her. And unfortunately, she died early, uh, probably of, of childbed fever, um, which was a common common thing for, for women to die of in, in an era when childbirth, whether it was in a teepee in a valley in the Rocky Mountains or in the settlements or in a great city, was a, a very risky proposition for, for the women. Um, childbed fever is, is a, an infection um, occurring at birth and from, from the effects of birth. And uh, women often succumb to it days or weeks after, after giving birth. But during their time together, it's very clear that, that Carson and uh, Singing Grass, Wainibi, were a, a true couple. And uh, she did bear him two children. Kit and Wa'anibe had two daughters. The eldest was named Adeline after a favorite niece of Carson's back in Missouri. And uh, the younger child's name was lost to history. So we're in the late 1830s now. And, uh, and Carson's facing a great deal of loss. In the first place, the beaver trade is starting to decline. And part of that is because the competition amongst the fur companies has overtrapped the resource. These far-traveled mountain men were finding it necessary to go deeper and deeper into the mountains and into more and more dangerous country like the territory of the Blackfoot to find productive beaver streams. The other factor that was at play was that the market had changed and the beaver top hat, which had been the height of fashion for many decades, had fallen out of fashion and men were now wearing top hats made of silk from Asia. The Asian trade had really taken off in, uh, in the past decade or so. And so the, the mountain men were finding themselves in this terrible double bind where they needed to trap twice as much beaver to make their nut, and they were only able to find about half as much beaver. And the conditions of, of the work were deteriorating significantly. Um, many of them were so wedded to their lifestyle that they, they were in a kind of denial where they would repeatedly say, you know, beaver's bound to rise, beaver's bound to rise. And and they sort of uh, indulged in a little bit of magical thinking that somewhere there was an Eldorado of, of furs that uh, would recoup their, their fortunes. But the realistic men amongst them, and most of them were pretty hard pragmatists, realized that the, uh, the glory days were done and that they would need to find other forms of work. Uh, Carson and a few of his comrades, uh, for example, ran south to Navajo country uh, on a horse trading expedition. And that was uh, believed to be Carson's first uh, significant encounter with the Navajo, whose name he'd be linked with in, in later years. So Carson's watching the, the trade that he's devoted himself to for the, the past uh, decade and a half decline and his livelihood uh, going away. Uh, at the same time, probably in 1839 or 40, or maybe in the winter, 1839-40, Wa'anibi died. Um, as we mentioned, she died in, in not in childbirth, but of childbed fever shortly after the birth of their second child. So Carson had two very young children in tow, and he had to start thinking about what he was going to do to provide for them. And, uh, and he recognized that his time in the mountains was coming to an end. And uh, so he set, headed south to Bent's Fort, which was built along the Arkansas River uh, and uh, had been built in, in 1833 by the Bent brothers. 
Charles and William. And uh, it was the great trading post of the Southern Rockies and South Plains. Uh, at that time, that was somewhat recognized as the border with Mexico. So it was a, a border town and a very important trading center. And so Carson and uh, his children and a couple of comrades headed south to Bent's Fort. And he signed on there at the post as a post hunter. And uh, he was highly skilled with a rifle, and uh, his job was to keep the post supplied with, with meat, which would have included deer, elk, and buffalo. Uh, he would be out on the plains hunting the buffalo. So that's where the, uh, the period of the end of the fur trade, the recognized end of the Rocky Mountain fur trade in 1840, found Kit Carson. In his 1856 memoir, Kit put himself in the, the present tense, reflecting on leaving the mountains for, for Bent's Fort. And he said, It has now been 16 years I have been in the mountains. The greater part of that time passed far from the habitation of civilized man and receiving no other food than that which I could procure with my rifle. It's pretty clear from his reminiscences and the gusto. Well, he never really retold anything with gusto. It was all pretty matter-of-fact. But uh, you can kind of read between the lines and tell that Carson really knew that this was the, the best years of his life, the time of his youth, the time of, of great vigor and, and heroic deeds in the great country of the Rocky Mountains. So now here he was, a man in his early 30s with serious family responsibilities and two children of a very young age that needed to be taken care of. And I really believe that he was, was deeply mourning his wife. Uh, as I said before, I'm, I'm convinced that his relationship with Wa'anibe was a, a love match. He never really said much about his personal life or his personal relations with women. All he ever said about her was, she was a good wife to me. I never came in from hunting that she did not have warm water ready for my feet. Now, you know, that may just seem like, well, she was useful to me, but I, I think that given the context of the way Carson spoke in his memoir and, and his reminiscences, various reminiscences, I think that, that that was his heartfelt way of, of expressing his appreciation for his late wife. So he had two kids that needed to be cared for and needed a, he needed a woman in his life to, to do that. Um, there wasn't really a, an option to be a stay-at-home dad when you're the post hunter for Bent's Fort. Um, and certainly he, he must have desired female companionship. He's known to have had a relationship with uh, a woman named Antonia Luna, who was uh, in Taos and had a reputation as a quote-unquote loose woman. Um, don't know exactly what that means. It doesn't necessarily mean she was a prostitute or, or anything like that. It could have just meant that, that she had multiple partners. One of those was the great... Uh, black American mountain man, Jim Beckworth, who we will certainly revisit sometime in the Frontier Partisans podcast. But uh, that was clearly on the order of, of slaking his need for female companionship. In order to uh, take care of his children, he remarried to a Cheyenne woman whose name uh, comes down as Making Out Road, and that was a, a disastrous relationship. She appears to have been a very difficult woman to get along with. Um, and I'm not saying that as a Carson partisan or anything like that. She was married and divorced three times. And uh, her marriage with Carson lasted a, a very short period of time before they had what amounts to a, a divorce in the very informal style of the, the plains and mountains. So he was back to, to being a single father of young children. 
And he took it into his head that he needed to take Adeline back east to Missouri to get her an education. And uh, he also wanted to bide a while in the civilization that he hadn't seen for those 16 years or so. And this was to prove a fateful trip because it was there that he met a young military officer named John C. Fremont. And that meeting was the linchpin of his life. It led to international fame and a career in public service as an explorer. And that would lead to a career as an Indian agent and finally as an army officer. We'll take up those tales in part three and part four of this podcast on the the life and legacy of Christopher Houston Carson. So thank you very much for coming to the campfire. And uh, if you're interested in supporting the Frontier Partisans podcast, uh, I'd encourage you to go to FrontierPartisans.com and visit the trading post and uh, any purchases of, of the plunder in our trading post will go towards the, uh, the costs of, of producing and maintaining this podcast. And I have a GoFundMe link on that page. I'm also fixing to establish a Patreon page, which will allow folks to provide ongoing support to the podcast and uh, will also provide some rewards for those patrons. I welcome your feedback on the podcast or anything to do with uh, the Frontier Partisans blog at frontierpartisan at gmail.com. And I appreciate y'all coming to the campfire. I'm really enjoying spinning these yarns and uh, looking forward to continuing it for some time to come. And uh, we'll see you down the trail.